get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. I kidnapped greatness and left no ransom. I'm the grandson of Muhammad Ali, but more handsome. Welcome to the Church Politics Podcast. This is Michael Ware. Uh, Justin Gibney is uh, out for this week's episode, but I am happy to be with you. And uh, this week we have a conversation that I'm, I'm so happy we can bring to you. Uh, it's with Aaron Haynes Wack. Uh, Aaron is the AP's national uh, uh, writer on race and ethnicity, uh, and it's just going to be a, a, a joy. Uh, Aaron is the national writer on race and ethnicity for the Associated Press, uh, and we have just uh, uh, so much to talk with Aaron about, and we're uh, so blessed that she's here. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for joining the Church Politics Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You know, we connected over uh, social media, and I've, I've really loved following you uh, over the last maybe six, nine months in particular. Uh, and we connected um, uh, Dorothy Cotton, that giant of Absolutely. American history, that giant of the civil rights movement, yeah. uh, passed last week. And uh, just thought it would be wonderful to have a conversation uh, with you. I know you've, uh, I don't know, are you based in Atlanta now? Uh, I actually am not based in Atlanta, but I'm from Atlanta and I covered the rights community in Atlanta for the Associated Press for several years. And so certainly was aware of, of Ms. Cotton and her legacy. And, and I'm really glad that we're having a broader conversation about her because I think it's really important and also really relevant for today. Yeah. So so help help our listeners understand uh, who who was Dorothy Cotton? Sure. Uh, So like you mentioned, uh, Dorothy Cotton died last Sunday. Uh, She was 88 years old. And, you know, as a young woman, she was recruited by her pastor, Wyatt T. Walker, uh, to work for Martin Luther King Jr.'s newly formed Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And her role at the SCLC was really to educate countless Black Americans, many of them in the South, young and poor, uh, on what it meant to be a citizen and how they could really fully participate in a democracy that had been closed to them. Uh, You know, oftentimes by violent means, frankly, um, you could say that she was the civil rights arm of, of the civil rights movement. Yeah, no, uh, it was uh, uh, the SCLC, you know, folks know, listeners of the podcast, um, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Lowry, she, uh, Dorothy Cotton also had experience working with Wyatt T. Walker, uh, Julian Bond. I mean, this was the very uh, heart of the movement. And of course, that also meant uh, she was uh, really a right hand aide to Dr. King and Abernathy. I I mean, uh, she. Andrew Ambassador Young. Absolutely. Exactly. And so. And I think it's also important to point out she was a rare woman in leadership and exactly right. The women's rights movement, right? I mean, exactly right. Black women we see at the forefront of modern protest movements. I mean, for example, you know, uh, you got a black woman, you know, who started the Me Too hashtag and 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 three black women that that did Black Lives Matter. But uh, you know. 
that was really rare for her era. And, and so while we certainly don't want to take away from the many women who did work for racial progress during this era behind the scenes, she really was somebody in the executive leadership who had Dr. King's ear. Yeah, absolutely. And she was, uh, she, I believe she was the room uh next door to King at the Lorraine Motel. Um, And so now, you know, uh, praise God, uh, uh, she she was able to live a long, full life. Can can you help? uh, What did she do after, you know, the the heart of the civil rights era? I know she started some some centers. She obviously continued to remain involved. Talk a little bit about the the role she had in in Atlanta and obviously, you know, nationally and internationally. She absolutely continued to stay involved in kind of that civic education uh, that had been uh, foundational uh, for her uh, in her role at the LC. So she definitely kept doing that. And, um, you know, she, she uh, had a master's degree. And so she, she also was involved, you know, kind of um, in that role uh, in academics. I believe she was at Cornell for some time. Um, she passed away in New York, uh, where she had, she had been uh, towards the end of her life. But, but she stayed on with SCLC uh, for, for several years, really keeping the SCLC going after Dr. King was assassinated, help, helping to be that kind of that core group of folks that really kept SCLC going in the years after his death. Right. Now, for folks who want to learn more about Dorothy Cotton, what what are the best resources for them to go to? Because I'd really encourage our listeners to, oh, to, to dig into who Dorothy Cotton was. You could learn a lot for this present moment by studying exactly uh, right. what Dorothy Cotton did. I mean, it, it was um, amazing. You know, she was doing uh, wait-ins. So I mean, she was doing uh, the court, the, the, the the courage of her leadership was incredible. So, yeah, where, where can people go to learn more? Yeah, I mean, I think that's important to, to say because, like I said earlier, you know, Dorothy Cotton's legacy uh, is really relevant to, to, to the moment that we find ourselves in right now. The types of people that she was helping back then were much like the Black Americans that were looking for remedy today. Like I said, um, not necessarily, uh, you know, as, as educated as she was, marginalized, but they had tremendous promise and they had untapped leadership skills and they just needed to be plugged into how systems worked and what their rights were. And, you know... It, Dorothy Cotton, in, in these trainings, I mean, you got much more than information. There was fellowship and song and really just this found sense of dignity as a participant, not just in our institutions, like voting or protest, but in being part of a much broader and connected effort for social progress. So what I would really encourage people to do, I mean, we are so fortunate that we had... Um, she she do a, a, a memoir at, at towards the end of her life just uh, in 2012, I believe it was. Uh, the name of the memoir is If Your Back Is Not Bent. Uh, and it, it, it really very good. And it's her, you know, in her own words, um, talking about uh, her contribution to the movement. Uh, and, and, and it's really important. And and I encourage people to read it. I enjoyed it. And and uh, and I think it's a good record of, of what uh, you know her legacy was. But she also does kind of talk about uh, our current moment and how we can um, how we can apply the lessons that, that she learned to today. Absolutely. Uh, I'd also, uh, folk, listeners to the podcast know I've been reading uh, David Garrow's uh, uh, biography of uh, President Obama. David yeah, Garrow won true. the Pulitzer for uh, his book, Burying the Cross on the Civil Rights Movement. 
uh, Dorothy Cotton uh, features heavily in, in that. Uh, I'd recommend that as well. Uh, Aaron, we have so much more to discuss with you, but uh, is there anything else you want our listeners to know about about Miss Cotton? You know, she had a beautiful singing voice, apparently, that was uh, used to disarm mm-hmm. uh, folks in, in the movement. When things got tense. Uh, she was also, you know, somebody with tremendous grace and, and charm uh, and really brought back uh, to the movement uh, in a way that, that I don't necessarily think her contemporaries were able to do, frankly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. We're going to be right back. We need to discuss uh, the the Supreme Court decision on voting rights, uh, all of last week's immigration news, uh, and a few other pieces. We'll be right back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up, and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person that I actually at least pretend to give a damn about us. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult, related questions that are begging to be answered. Two grown men picked him up, a 15-year-old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look, they look to us. Right? They say, you fucking n****s, this is what happens to you. God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your All right, we're back with the Church Politics Podcast, and uh, we have uh, Erin Haynes uh, Wack with us. Uh, She's a reporter with the Associated Press, and we're so happy to have her on. And uh, just had a a really interesting conversation about uh, Dorothy Cotton. And uh, last week, we had a significant civil rights decision, uh, voting rights decision by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled a 5-4 to uh, basically say that Ohio's voter purges of the roles of voters who had not voted in recent elections and hadn't sort of responded to outreach from the state government that they could, uh, without their uh, w- really without their knowledge, be removed from voter rolls and have to re-register. Uh, Aaron, could you uh, just talk a little bit about where this decision uh, sits with you know recent vo- uh, voting rights decisions and with the voting rights conversation and uh, and what are what are advocates uh, uh, saying in response to this this five four decision? Sure. Uh, so if uh, you know this really is um, one of the major decisions that has come in the wake of, if you remember the Supreme Court's 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder, and that decision said that states with a history of voter discrimination would no longer be required to seek Justice Department approval before making changes. And so, you know, the the case that was decided last Tuesday, uh, as you mentioned, uh, says that you know, states can target people who haven't voted in a while uh, to help maintain active voting lists, which kind of brings a whole new meaning to the idea of absentee ballot, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, the ruling definitely caused alarm, you know, among civil rights advocates. Uh, you know, they're saying that the decision is a potential blow to vote rights and that states should be making it easier and not harder to vote. Um, 
uh, in her dissent, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, who was the only woman of color on the court, as you probably know, uh, said that the ruling uh, ignores history, uh, you know, a history of, of voter suppression uh, in this country. So, um, which is a very similar, you know, which is a very similar critique to the uh, uh, to the uh, pushback against uh, uh, the the I believe it was Roberts wrote the opinion in Shelby where where he basically said you know uh, this was once relevant but 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 race is really no longer relevant in the same ways and so we we saw that poke its head up uh, uh, again. Uh, do, do you think that this is going to have? Um, uh, I, I've been reading various accounts of just how uh, uh, the, the scope of this ruling and what exactly it's going to do to influence other states. Um, do you think this ruling is going to feature, uh, you know, heavily in ongoing attempts to uh, to push voter disenfranchisement uh, uh, forward, or, or do you think that this is going to have a, a pretty limited effect? Well, you know, that's really unclear. I mean, after Shell County, uh, you know, there were states that moved swiftly to make changes to their voting laws and to their maps. Uh, you know, and, and this this is not a new rule for Ohio, uh, which has been pretty aggressive. I think they're the most aggressive uh, about purging uh, their roles. Uh, they've been doing that for about a generation. Uh, and there are a few other states with similar to Ohio's currently on the books. Uh, I'm thinking about Oklahoma, Georgia, uh, Montana, Oregon, Pennsylvania, where I, I live now, uh, and West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, but it's really unclear whether other states are going to adopt similar rules. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we're going to keep our listeners up to date uh, on this. Uh, th- there have been, but prior to this ruling, uh, th- there have been pushes yeah. to uh, re-solidify uh, voting rights in this country. Uh, I tend to think that we need to be doing more to expand voting rights and to see contractions like this happen. Uh, are, are well, it's pretty, definitely something to pay attention to, especially yeah. getting into the midterms. I mean, voter turnout in presidential election years is around 60%. Yeah, that's right. In the general, but in non-presidential years, that drops to about 40%. Exactly right. Uh, Aaron, the, the, the last bit of news from last week we want to cover, uh, and there really is so much to cover yeah. uh, here, uh, is... Uh, the the uh, uh, this administration's border enforcement policy, the reaction to it, um, just for uh, many of our listeners will be aware of the context uh, uh, that includes the fact that last week uh, Vice President Pence went to the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country, mm-hmm. includes uh, the it tends to be more conservative, both politically and theologically. Uh, And uh, Vice President Pence gave a a pretty rah-rah message that many thought was overly political uh, uh, and overly, you know, praising of Trump. And and then just the the following day after Vice President Pence spoke to this audience and and told them uh, how central they were to the moral fabric of this nation, you have the Attorney General and Press Secretary uh, 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 and the Press Secretary Using their pulpits to to, to basically uh, say that the Southern Baptists and Catholics and most of other religious leadership in this country uh, have their interpretation of the Bible wrong when they speak out against this administration's border enforcement policy, and so religion just played a huge role last week. Obviously, race has played a huge role in uh, how this administration has been carrying out its border enforcement policy. 
we know that 2,000, just over the last six weeks, uh, 2,000 children have been separated from their families. And so, Aaron, why, I think, can you help our listeners understand exactly what is the policy that's being carried out? And is it, why is it different? Why are we seeing such a, such an onslaught and such overwhelming reaction uh, to to uh, to this this policy. Sure. Um, it, so you mentioned, uh, you know, my AP colleagues broke the story on Friday that the Trump administration has separated about two thousand children from their families uh, in the past six weeks, and you know, the administration says that the, the reason for this is that uh, you know uh, you have adults that are coming uh, into the tree illegally, uh, bringing children with them, and you know that uh, they have a zero tolerance policy that, that they're going to enforce, uh, you know, with families. And so, you know, Attorney General Sessions said, you know, similar to the way that, um, you know, uh, 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 and, uh, folks arrested in this country would, you know, with children would, would be separated, you know, that's what they're doing here. And so uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, Attorney General Sessions, who is Methodist, who is also a Sunday school teacher. Uh, you know, he did mention uh, Romans 13, uh, you know, saying that, you know, for, for those who were challenging, you know, the policy that, um, you know, that Scripture tells us to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Uh, you know, by the way, Romans 13 also says further down that love worketh no ill to his neighbor and that love is fulfilling of the law. But, uh, you know, he was he was he was doing that because, you know. Religious leaders, especially black clergy, were, were outspoken uh, at sessions, you know, invoking Romans, saying that he was using scripture incorrectly. And they also recalled, uh, frankly, the Bible's fraught relationship with American Christianity, which has used, you know, sacred texts to justify slavery and racial oppression. Uh, you know, even, you know, Trump uh, supporter Franklin Graham called the policy disgraceful, uh, although he also blamed, you know, politicians who have let immigration go kind of un- unresolved for, for years. But I mean, this is, you know, the fallout from continues, you know, the president is facing backlash from some Republicans. You have former First Lady Laura Bush with an op-ed in the Washington Post this morning. Uh, and even the current First Lady, the president's wife, uh, you know, took to Twitter to, to kind of weigh in on this. So, um, yeah, interesting, interesting times and religion certainly loomed large over over this uh, this issue. Yeah, and look, uh, you know, if these voters, I mean, I mean, so like you said, the, the, many people across the faith community are speaking out uh, from denominations that attended to support President Trump to those who didn't. Uh, one would think, given the rhetoric that's come out of this administration about how important faith is to the country, about how much access they've provided, particularly to uh, conservative white evangelicals, uh, that if there was a a disagreement about policy that was taking place, uh, that these leaders that they respect so much would be called in for a public meeting where the president, who again respects them so much, could hear their views and take them into consideration and express some humility about the policies carrying out. And yet we, we've seen none of that. You know, where, where is where is the Oval Office Roosevelt Room meeting with Cardinal Timothy Dolan and with uh, Sammy Rodriguez and Luis Cortez? Uh, we're just not seeing it. And so the question I think religious folks have to ask, especially those who are supporting Trump, is whether, you know, the Trump administration uh, 
only likes having them around when they agree with him and when when they don't um they, they, they don't have much much use for you it's a it's a significant thing to use the bully pulpit of the presidency to uh to spread uh what most theologians and most pastors think was a pretty awful reading of scripture uh, that that's not uh, uh that's not really the most productive thing i think for a lot of these religious folks and so uh it, that's going to be interesting and then as you said aaron uh, uh for first lady laura bush former first lady laura bush to write this op-ed that is um I mean, she she didn't hold back. It's a it's a pretty, um, you know. I, I'm interested to see over the next few days whether that maybe opens the floodgates a, a little bit of a more explicit uh, re, uh, criticism from sitting Republicans about this administration's policy. Yeah, and and she is in Texas. I mean, she's not at border, but she certainly is in in that state that has now come into uh, national focus. Uh, you know, yeah. and so, uh, you know, her raising this issue uh, and, and, and being, you know, someone who is widely respected in the party, you know, don't know what effect, uh, what effect that that might have. But, you know, frankly, uh, the church has, has factored into, you know, this immigration conversation, you know, throughout, uh, you know, Trump's campaign and now into his presidency. I mean, churches have certainly kind of stood in the gap uh, as Attorney General Sessions has gone after uh, so-called sanctuary cities, you know, they have offered refuge uh, for folks. And, uh, and you know, and you've got some clergy. Right, right. Even this week, talk about going down to the water uh, to see for themselves and to, and to see what they can do uh, to help some of these families uh, that, that are being affected. So uh, I think you're going to continue to see, uh, you know, the faith community weighing in, even though, even if they're not necessarily, uh, you know, having meetings at the old office, trying to trying to maybe influence this president, uh, you know, from a moral standpoint on this issue. Absolutely. And we'll we'll be looking for uh the, the role that the faith community plays in uh, protests, national protests that are going to be taking place on Thursday, I believe. Uh, so that'll be worth staying tuned to. Uh, Aaron, the last thing I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, is this article you wrote for uh, Neiman, a journalism lab. And uh, I'm going to ask you about it right after we take a quick break for advertisers. This is the Church Politics Podcast. I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person that I actually at least pretend to give a damn about. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult, related questions that are begging to be answered. Two grown men picked him up, a 15-year-old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look, they look to us. Right? They say, you fucking niggas, this is what happens to you. God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back with Aaron Haynes Wack with Associated Press. Uh, and Aaron, I wanted to ask you about uh, this article you wrote again for Neiman Journalism Lab. Uh, 
at sure. the ballot. It's time to count black women. Uh, just uh, just t- tell me a little bit about, uh, I'll describe to listeners just the, the basic thrust of, of, of the article. And then I have a, a specific question about something that came up in the, in the course of it. Sure. So name and lab every year, uh, you know, at the end of the year, they ask us to make predictions for what uh, they think uh, should really be important in terms of cover areas for, for the coming year. And, and frankly, uh, at that time, we had just come out of um, special elections in Alabama and uh, Virginia. And, you know, what occurred to me as people were talking about excitedly about, you know, 2018 potentially being the year of the woman in terms of the midterms, uh, you know, what really struck me that that black women in particular were going to be factoring into uh, this, this, this election cycle. And so, uh, you know, black women, this shouldn't be surprising to anyone since since black women are the most loyal and consistent voting bloc in the Democratic Party. But but they've been neglected. Uh, but but I think that, you know, with um, a couple of high profile national elections in which black women featured pretty prominently, uh, you know, they're really beginning to realize, you know, just what their strength is, uh, you know, not only at the ballot box, but also in terms of organizing and, and fundraising. And as candidates, as Absolutely. candidates themselves. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's and, really going to be the yeah. difference in this cycle, too. I mean, just, um, you know, you've got so many candidates. And, and, and so black women who, you know, show up to the ballot uh, box uh, consistently have a ch- are having a chance in so many states to vote for someone who looks like them, which does not always happen. Uh, you know, and, and so that, that, I think, is something that's yeah. exciting and energizing for a lot of them, because we know black women have been leaders in their communities, churches, institutions, you name it. But, you know, more and more, they're, they're really formalizing that, that leadership. Yeah. Now, Aaron, I was really interested. Uh, you, you had a, a, a bit in your article, uh, you, you said that, uh, you know, if we're going to take uh, black women's role in our politics more seriously, it's going to take reevaluating what we mean when we talk about in our political discourse, uh, uh, college educated women, millennials, and then you included the phrase values voters. And that's something we talk about quite a lot on this show and would, would love for you to now, what are you what are you getting at? What do you think it looks like to take uh, to consider what values voters means uh, in light of uh, the rising importance of, of black women in our politics? Sure. Uh, well, I think you know, the black women that we know, you know, from Big Mama to, to the mothers who raised us to our sisters and aunties and and, you know, sons and, and everybody, uh, you know, these are women who care about family. Yep. These are women who care about education. These are women of faith, you know. Yeah. And, and so, you know, why not be interviewing these women about these issues, and not just race or not just gender, uh, but but really ab- about these issues as being priorities for them, as, as we know that they are. But often they are, they are not uh, necessarily uh, spoken to in that way, either by candidates or the me- I mean by potential yeah, candidates or the media. Right. And, and, you know, I think for for Republicans, what it looks like is uh, uh, if they want to continue to which is unclear in the Trump era. But if if they think they can get beyond Trump and go back to sort of selling themselves as the party of values, uh, what that is going to have to look like is speaking to issues uh, like uh, like education, like health care from a values perspective. And going to giving a values message to audiences that oftentimes they aren't willing to show up in front of, uh, uh, that the, 
the coalition of values voters is going to look different. Uh, for, for Democrats, uh, what it's going to mean is uh, you can uh, no longer uh, put black women and black voters in a, in a box and think that you could just cover criminal justice reform and whatever else and and uh, think that you can lock up the black vote. That As you, as you noted, uh, black women care about the family. They care about uh, the role of faith in this country. They care about, absolutely. you know, and so uh, and I, I, I'm not a monolith, do I think that's really important. Exactly. I, I think about just a few of the recent examples, uh, you know, London Reed, who just... Uh, you know, uh, San Francisco's San Francisco's mayor elect. Uh, you got Stacey Abrams out of Georgia that's trying to be the first black woman to be elected governor in America. Exactly right. Uh, Lauren Underwood out of Illinois. I mean, all these women are 45. Some of them have a ton of political experience. Others have none whatsoever. Uh, you know, you've got some progressive uh, black women who, who have won primaries, uh, you know, young women yeah. uh, who maybe don't necessarily, you haven't necessarily started families yet or aren't, aren't starting families, but, but, right. uh, but, but, you know, certainly have um, priorities and, ag- and an agenda that, that, that uh, other black women like them are, are, can relate to and, and are resonating with. Absolutely. Well, I, I love this article. I hope folks will Thank check so it much. out. We'll put the link. Uh, we'll put the link in with the description of this episode. Uh, Aaron, we just want to thank you for the excellent work you do at AP. Um, want to encourage you. Uh, how are, these are such uh, complicated times. I mean, just last week, it felt like last week could have been, you know, a month's worth of news uh, uh, for, uh, you know, in another time. Sure. Uh, just as a journalist working, uh, just, uh, you know, how, how do you keep your head above water? You know, how, how are you doing personally uh, having to write on such significant, you know, issues all, all the time? Oh, well, thank you. That's very uh, kind of you to say, and I really, I really appreciate it. But I have to, I mean, I just have to say it is, it is really an honor and a privilege to have the role that I have, uh, you know, here at the Associated Press, you know, to be, uh, you know, our writer on, on, on race and ethnicity issues at uh, really such an important time for our country and, and for our people. And so, you know, I've been covering race for most of my career. Uh, it has not always been this popular of a beat <laughs> to cover. It has not always been this busy, but the issues have always been there. Uh, they have always been there. And, and, and you know, I, I will not, you know, sit here and pretend like you know, there are not hard days. I mean, certainly I think about just this past week, you know, anniversary of, of um, you know, Charleston and, 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 you know, so there are days like that, but, you know, yeah. when, when, when right. you know, I, I find myself being discouraged or, um, you know, a little weary. I mean, I think about this, this, this is not, you know, my story to tell. I mean, it really is uh, just such an honor to be, you know, part of a long line of, of folks who really put a lot more on the line and were so much more courageous, uh, you know, than than those of us that, that have the privilege of doing this job today. I mean, I think about Simeon Booker, who passed away recently, and, and certainly Ida B. Wells, who hopefully will soon be honored with a statue in her hometown. You know, I mean, this is, this is um, you know, those folks really are, are, are the lamp, you know, under our feet and, for, and, and under our path, uh, you know, when we... Uh, you know, find ourselves 
you know, getting discouraged, but, you know, we all have to do what we can while we're yeah. here, you know, to uh, to tell the story, to witness and to, to really take folks a uh, place where, you know, most Americans uh, can't go to, to, yeah. to tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Aaron, thank you for going to those places. Uh, you're now officially a friend of the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, we'd love to have you back at some point. Absolutely. And uh, folks would really encourage you to check out Aaron's incredible reporting. Again, uh, Aaron is the national writer on race and ethnicity for the Associated Press. Uh, and Aaron, again, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Well, again, it was an absolute pleasure to have Erin Haynes-Wack with us. I would encourage you to follow her work, uh, to to read what she's doing at the Associated Press and elsewhere. Uh, and again, Erin, we're, we're grateful for you. Glad to have you as a friend of the Church Politics Podcast and uh, look forward to the work that you produce in the coming weeks. Well, folks, that's it for this week's episode. Again, we'll be back next week to discuss the array of developments that have taken place uh, over the last several weeks. I know Justin's excited to do that. I am as well. Until then, have a great week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. In the favelas and slums together with inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.